0: Let the torch of freedom burn.
1: President Calvin Coolidge said, The more I study the Constitution, the more I realize that no other document devised by the hand of man has brought so much progress and happiness to humanity. To live under the American Constitution is the greatest political privilege that was ever accorded to the human race.
2: Welcome to the Intersection of Faith and the Culture. It's Wall Builders. We're taking on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. We're doing that with David and Tim Barton. Tim's a national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. David Barton, of course, America's premier historian and our founder at Wall Builders. And I'm Rick Green, America's constitution coach and a former Texas legislator. It's an honor to serve with these guys. I hope that you enjoy the program. Hope you check us out at wallbuilders.com. So many great tools there. Whether you want to get into some of the videos or, or, or you know, books or whatever it is and dive a little deeper into our founding principles and learn those things, or you just want to listen to some of the archives of the radio program, there's so much there. But one thing I do want to ask you to do when you get to that website, wallboulders.com, make a contribution. Help invest in freedom. You know, lives, fortunes, sacred honor, fortunes. It takes fuel in the tank. Everybody's got to be willing to give a little bit. You know, if you can just do a small contribution there, maybe you can do a big one today. It helps us to train more pastors and teachers and young people and legislators and all the things that we're doing at Wall Builders to restore America's constitutional republic. And also it helps us to add stations, to to reach more people with this program where we're teaching truth. We're getting into the foundations. That's what today's all about. Foundations of Freedom Thursday is to get into, it's an opportunity for all of us to get into those foundational principles and answer your questions. And it's a great time for us to share and to learn and sharpen each other's countenance. All right, David and Tim, let's dive in. We got a lot of questions from the audience today. First one from Murphy, Texas. Man, I I grew up right by Murphy, Texas and Wiley, Texas. So been through Murphy many, many times. This one's from Ofer in Murphy, Texas. Ofer said, hello, David, Tim, and Rick. Thanks for all the good information and teaching you provide through your daily radio program. Uh, My question is very current. On Friday, the Supreme Court decided that despite the clear statement in the Constitution that the state and federal courts can review election rules established by the state legislature. How can they get it so wrong? And more importantly, what can we, the people, do about it? My next class of Constitution Alive at the Collin County GOP headquarters starts next week, and I'm sure this question will come up. How can I explain to my students that we live in a constitutional republic while the Supreme Court is ignoring the clear statement of the Constitution? Oh, thank you, first of all, for being a coach, uh, for bringing uh, the Constitution class to my old home county
0: of Collin County. And uh, thank you for asking the question. Great question. David, Tim, what do you think? Well this this one is a pretty partisan answer, but it, it's I can't blame it totally on Democrats. You have to blame it on human nature. The reason that you had the Supreme Court get involved in the districting and redistricting of some of these southern states goes back to the fact that after the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments were passed to the Constitution at the end of the Civil War, giving to every citizen, including black citizens who formerly had been slaves, gave them the right to vote. It gave them the right to have all political opportunities everybody else had. It gave them the right to every state right that was there, the right to be married, the right to own land, the right to keep and bear arms, the right to serve on a jury, the right to have schools. It gave all of those rights. And for 80 years, the Democrats in charge of those states would said, well, that may be what the Constitution says, but we're not gonna do that. And so what happened over that period of time uh, Democrat legislatures would draw lines in such a way that it would particularly dilute and exclude black vote because the black vote was strongly Republican, overwhelmingly Republican. And so the Democrats, in a very partisan way, said, hey, we're going to we're going to make sure blacks who are republics can't vote like we do so that we can keep control of the state. Because in states like Georgia, in states like South Carolina, you actually had more blacks who had been former slaves, then you had whites who were white citizens. And so if blacks are allowed to vote, well, my goodness, the white Democrats lose all their power. So the Democrats abused this for so long, for for 80 years, that finally in 1964 and 1965, new civil rights laws were passed. The Voting Rights Act of 65 and the Civil Rights Act of 64 that gave the federal government authority to help enforce Uh, voting in those Southern states because up through the 1960s, this kind of nonsense was still going on. And so this really is a response to the Southern Democrat states absolutely wanting to keep Blacks under control and not allow them to have any voice. And that now everybody's paying the price for that. Uh, Certainly the civil rights movement has done a great job of what they did in the 60s and 70s and changes that were brought there. Um, and, And we've seen things significantly change. That doesn't change the fact that the federal government was allowed to get involved in that through federal laws that were passed because Democrats ignored the Constitution, particularly the 14th and 15th Amendments. So that's kind of the short answer to it. We're all stuck with bad Democrat policy and behavior, and that's what we're fighting right now. And, and just to be clear, we're talking about uh, what kind of election process. Let's let's make sure we're
1: clear, because if you look, for example, just to offer a little more thought, and, and the Constitution, Article One, Section 4, it does identify that states are the ones who are in charge of time, place, manner of elections. It does say, however, that Congress can come in and pass a law. So feds are not excluded from all the election process, but there are certain things that have have been understood to belong to the states and traditionally have always been in the states. So so just uh, let's offer a little clarity. What are we specifically referring to? What's the question specifically asking?
0: Yeah, it goes back to the Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court decision looked at Alabama— Looked, at, I think it was North Carolina was the other. And the legislatures there had, had drawn the new congressional district lines uh, under the 2020 census results released in, in 2021. And so they draw the new lines for 2022. And that's where the elections were held. Well, in both North Carolina and Alabama, traditional southern states where there was a lot of racism, uh, a lot of anti-civil rights under Democrat leadership for 80 years, they had in, enforced laws back in 1964, 1965 to make sure that blacks had fair representation; that they could not be shut out of the process. Technically, if you're only 14, 15, 18 percent of the vote, you could literally draw every district where that uh, that 18 percent of the vote could never win anywhere, any any place in the state. And so that's essentially what was happening. And so what happened was after the slash redistricting. Uh, the lines were redrawn in such a way that it was much more Republican because it's Republican state legislatures. They drew the lines to be more Republican. But since now, about 93 to 97 percent of, of of black voters are Democrats, it makes it more Republican than Democrat and blacks get shut out in, in their representation. So this was the Supreme Court saying, hey, we're not going to we're not going to let those two legislatures pass the laws as they passed them because they were too strongly Republican. And so the argument was by the Democrats who were fighting this thing because they lost the elections and therefore they lost redistricting. They said, hey, Republicans winning this makes it anti-black and you've got to step in on behalf of blacks and give Democrats more power. And so it really is a partisan kind of thing that went on over race. But race became an issue because of the way Democrats did things back, back for 80 years. So that's really what these two cases are about. It it struck down the uh, congressional districting maps done in those two states, and the legislature has to go back and draw lines that look a little more fair uh, for all races, not just Republican versus Democrat. Now, this is not an issue that happens in, in really most of the other states that are not the former Confederate states. I mean, this is not an issue that's going to happen in Wisconsin, or it's not going to happen in Oregon or California. This is essentially civil rights laws in the former Confederate states. Now
1: let's also point out. I think anytime there's redistricting, this is this is the way it happens. And Rick, you can speak to this as a state legislature, but or state legislator. You were part of the legislature. But anytime that one party gains power and redistricting is happening, that 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 political party, whether it's Democrat, Republicans, or whatever other group might be in power at that time, they're always going to redistrict to favor their own party to try to win as many seats as they can. And so, Dad, you're saying, you know, this is something that is especially going to be decried in Southern states. Well, I, no, I mean, I think if Republicans start redistricting in Wisconsin in a more favorable way for Republicans to win, then Democrats would say, use these same arguments because... Anytime their power is threatened, they're going to cry out with what they feel like is the most effective tool in their toolbox to try to stop the other side. And right now, they think the most effective tool they have is to decry racism, is that you're a racist for not doing what we want, right? I mean, we've seen this attack from the left a long time. And so I I think that's going to be an argument that we're going to see in lots of states, regardless of it being a Confederate state or not. But to your point, one of the reasons that, that there is a precedent for federal government stepping in on redistricting or enforcing some of these constitutional rights is because traditionally, historically, there definitely were some of these uh, southern, deep Democrat, Confederate kind of states that were revoking basic civil rights to a lot of black Americans. And that's why the federal government got
0: involved many years ago. Yeah, Tim, you're exactly right. This happens in every state. It's already happened this last cycle in New York where Republicans sued against Democrats. uh, And what I wasn't clear about, the difference is they don't use the, the issue of anti-black as part of the reason you got to overturn the law. Uh, that was not the claim of the Republicans against the Democrats, that the Democrats made this anti-black. They use different arguments. But you're right, the losing side in, in most states, they try to go back in and, and get another district or two picked up. It's just a different argument in the South from what it is in the North. And, and so that, that was the basis of what the court looked at And the decision that they came down with on Alabama and I think it was North Carolina was the other state they kind of put together. You're exactly right, Tim. It goes on in all states just for different issues in other states. It was Alabama and
2: Louisiana. Louisiana. And and a couple thoughts on this, guys. This is um, I was really upset about these decisions because it it is so much more than just partisanship. It is racism and continuing to use racism in these lines. And and you can't. Here's the thing. First of all, in the politics part of it. And and just like you guys are saying, you're not going to be able to get politics out of redistricting. You're not going to get partisanship out of redistricting, because what is redistricting? It's drawing the lines for politics. It's drawing the lines that are uh, choosing partisans. And so everybody always tries to come up with a commission or some other way to do this. And there's a reason the Constitution put this in the power of the of the legislature. To Tim's point, 100% right. There's a, There's a little clause in there. I've actually been advocating for getting rid of it because of what they tried to do after the 2020 election that allows Congress to to actually modify it by law if they if they decide to do so. Here's my big problem. And, and And Thomas and Alito were with me on this. So they wrote dissenting opinions in both these cases because, as Thomas said in the affirmative action case, you don't solve racism by continuing to be racist. And these decisions are all about being able to draw lines to guarantee that someone is elected not on the content of their character but on the color of their skin, to judge the results of the elections based on the color of the skin of the person elected, Is racist, so I think this is such a step backwards. What the court has done here, they should have left it to the states. Uh, There's always going to be partisan battles, but they made these decisions based on racist um, viewpoints.
0: You know, and and I totally agree with you, Rick. And and I think we're reaping the fruits of some really bad Democrat philosophy. And had the Democrats done what they should have done and followed the Constitution when they took the oath to do so, we wouldn't be looking at this. And I'll also point to one other thing. It was in the 1829 election, the Democrats won the presidency, and on the floor of the Senate, when they nominated some people for office that had to be confirmed by the Senate, and the Senate objected to them because of the character of those individuals— The Democrat Senator Marcy from New York, he said, well, to the victor goes the spoils. And that became the the new mantra of the Democrat Party. If we win, we get to do what we want to do. And too often Republicans say, hey, we're going to do the same thing to you guys you did to us, which is just as wrong. And it's got to be on the content of character, not on the color of skin or any other superficial demographic. Inalienable rights belong to you just because you're human, not because you're of any demographic. So I totally agree with you, Rick. And I think that even what we do... And trying to retaliate one against another is the fruit of a bad Democrat philosophy introduced in 1829 when they said that the victor goes yeah. to spoils. Now you have the spoils system. So if we win the presidency, our guys get to do all – that's not the way government's supposed to work. And I, I'm totally with you, Rick. Totally agree with you. Every, every, every. You know, you
2: know and, and that's an important point too, David, you know, just the, the lack of morality and lack of ethics and lack of – uh, being honorable. You know, there used to be a time where Republican and Democrat, yeah, you duked it out, but you came together and you could logically discuss things and say, hey, this is best for the state or best for the country. Boy, it sure seems like it's hard to find people that will have that discussion like that. Everything's like you said. Victor goes to spoils. We're going to put it to them as hard as we can, as bad as we can, just because they're a Democrat or just because they're a Republican instead of saying, wow, this is, uh, you know, this policy. Like I have a friend uh, that I served with when I was in the House that was a inner-city you know, black Democrat, we disagreed on virtually everything except guns and school choice. And so we would stand there together. He helped me pass my bill to stop cities from suing gun manufacturers. We worked together to get, you know, try and get school choice back then. Why? Because we sat there and said, you're a Democrat from the inner city, very different from me, a Republican from the country. We have different ideas about a lot of things. But on this, we agree and we can think logically. Boy, I wish we could see more of that today. You know, that
0: that spoil system mentality, where it's partisanship and polarization, I was struck—we'll have a new book coming out later this year. It's The American Story. It's the second volume, which is Building the Republic, and it covers the first seven presidents. And I was really shocked to see the negative impact that Andrew Jackson had in many areas, not the least of which was that spoil system. But this is a stat I found that really shocked me, is if you look at the first six presidents— And that's 40 years of the presidency. You're going from George Washington all the way through John Quincy Adams and six different presidents for 40 years. If you look at all offices that are federal offices, in 40 years, those presidents replaced only 74 individuals in 40 years. So that is an average of two individuals a year. Jackson gets in, and in the first year alone, he replaced 1,000 federal employees with his people. It went all the way down to the local postmaster, and they issued an edict that says, you know what? If you're a local postmaster in the South and you don't want to deliver mail that has abolition stuff in it, you don't have to do that. You just you, you do the mail the way you want to for your community. And that's the spoil system where that now you're not looking at anybody's merit, whether they're competent. You're looking at whether they're your follower and whether they're going to move your agenda forward. And, and Rick, the time you're talking about where that, you know, Democrats and Republicans would link hands together and, and, and find common ground, man, at the fact that, that you're an R or D today is all the polarization you need and there's going to be no central ground. And I, I take a lot of that back to Jackson, quite frankly, but you're, you're spot on Rick with, with what you're saying.
2: So interesting. He weaponized the postal system. I mean, basically, yeah, politically weaponized, you know, the postal system. Wow. All right. Well, we're going to be looking forward to that second book. Let's take a quick break, guys. We've got a question from, get this, Walla Walla, Washington. All right. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Wall Builders on Foundations of Freedom Thursday. Have you noticed the vacuum of leadership in America? We're looking around for leaders of principle to step up, and too often, no one is there. God is raising up a generation of young leaders with a passion for impacting the world around them. They're crying out for the mentorship and leadership training they need. Patriot Academy was created to meet that need. Patriot Academy graduates now serve in state capitals around America, in the halls of Congress, in business, in the film industry, in the pulpit, in every area of the culture. They're leading effectively and impacting the world around them. Patriot Academy is now expanding across the nation, and now's your chance to experience this life-changing week that trains champions to change the world. Visit PatriotAcademy.com for dates and locations. Our core program is still for young leaders 16 to 25 years old, but we also now have a citizen track for adults. So visit the website today to learn more. Help us fill the void of leadership in America. Join us in training champions to change the world at PatriotAcademy.com.
1: Thomas Jefferson said, in questions of power, then let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution.
2: Welcome back to Wall Builders. Thanks for staying with us on this Foundations of Freedom Thursday. Next question is from James. Yep, you heard it right before the break. Walla, Walla, Washington. All right, he said, I've uh, much enjoyed your inspirational teachings and have been an avid listener of Wall Builders for the past 10 years. Prior to that, I enjoyed the information I got from David's historical instructions on VHS back in the late 90s. So we're going to pause here and educate the audience on what a VHS is and how no, just kidding. I currently have been posting the Constitution class, uh sorry, hosting the Constitution class once a year in the winter months over the past 5 years and every time I do it it keeps getting bigger. I only do it in the winter months after the first of the year because people are more available and I'm actively a precinct committee officer in my precinct. My question for you today is, is it proper? Is it legal? Is it ethical for an individual to run or hold more than one elected office at a time? For example, example is it proper for one to be a state legislator and a precinct committee officer? Seems to me this would be a conflict of interest, and it would be difficult at best, if not impossible, to properly fulfill the duties in both offices. I've seen this firsthand and do not agree with it. What are your thoughts? Thanks, and may God continue to bless you in all that you do, James. James, thank you. Thank you, thank you for hosting classes, for, for being a force multiplier. And man, that's a lot of classes, a lot of people that are... Now engaged as citizens because of you, and we greatly appreciate it. Okay, guys, I think he's asking now the offices he's mentioning. It sounds like one might be a party office and one might be a public office, so that might be a different question than can you hold two regular type public offices? Yeah,
0: and that is the distinction. Uh, a lot of this is going to be regulated by state laws. Uh, state laws in some states you can't hold an office and run for another office. That was the situation with DeSantis in Florida. He's governor of Florida. He's running for president. They had to pass a law in Florida just to allow him to run for a second office at the same time. He can't hold both at the same time. And most states have laws that regulate um, what you can do with the dual office. But, Rick, you're, you're mentioning— But he could have ran
2: in—like, Texas already has it where you can be running for a different office— while you're finishing out your term. So so what he did in Florida really was just kind of bring it in line with what most states that's have right. now.
0: That's right. But that's up to the state. And they didn't have to change yeah. that law for DeSantis in, in Florida. And I'm not saying they changed it for DeSantis. He was the reason they changed it. So he's the reason they recently yeah. changed it. And, and they didn't have to change it for anybody. They could have left it the way it was. And, and generally, holding two state offices, elected offices, are very different from, Rick, as you mentioned, holding a party office, even if it's elected, and holding a state office that's elected. Uh, Generally, as a state official, you're going to belong to one party or the other, and to be involved in the party process is not necessarily a conflict of interest with the state process. And so since state laws really do govern a lot of this, you got to pretty much go state by state on this to see what the state law is. But I think we all agree that there's really not a conflict of interest per se if you're holding a party office and you also run for a state office, an elected office, one is elected by by your party, your delegates, and the other is elected by the voters. And, and that's not the same thing as having two offices elected by the voters, whether you might have that conflict. And, and where we've seen a conflict of interest
1: in more recent times, whether it be um, some of these leaders of like the BLM organizations who then become mayors and who are you know involved in their local party. It, the conflict of interest is not because of having different positions. It's a lack of character that leads into doing immoral and unethical things that have caused it to be an issue. And that's where today people are looking at, at at maybe some of those examples and going, wait a second, they shouldn't be doing both things. Well, if, if it was a person of character and integrity, those are different offices. And, and right, you could do two things at once, right? It's like where, it, this is a ridiculous example, but as a sports guy, right, is it possible that for someone, uh, could could they be an assistant coach for a team and still they're a referee at other games, right? Like, can you do two things at once? Well, yes, you can. And as long as you're not refereeing your own game, right? Like, that's not a conflict of interest. You can have two positions at once and it not be a conflict of interest unless you don't have the character and integrity in those positions and you make it an issue because of your your immorality, your lack of ethics. And I think that would be the only time we would see there being an issue. But the issue is not the positions, it's a lack of character and ethics.
2: Yeah. And, and and sometimes it can be to the benefit of, say, a local county, maybe, um, you know, if their county commissioner or county judge is also let's say, a precinct chair or as a delegate to the state convention or, you know, maybe even uh, a state chair of a, of a party. Sometimes it can be to the, to the benefit and work well. And like you said, it very much depends on the individual. I do remember just a little fun history for everybody here. Another Barton, uh, not you two, uh, before you served as vice chair, uh, David, there was a big convention fight. It was one of the first conventions I ever went to. And it was a big convention fight Uh, between a friend of mine named uh, Tom Pawkin and a friend of mine named Joe Barton, who you guys know, who's not related to you, but he's a congressman. And so he was, Barton was in that position. Joe Barton was in that position because he was a congressman, but he was running for state chair. And so I I distinctly remember Phil Graham, who was the U.S. senator, running from district to district. You know, you remember how when you would campaign, David, and they had all those district meetings, and you would literally be running from meeting to meeting to be able to go uh, uh, talk to everybody. But that's the last one I remember like that, where it was a party office, and a pretty big public office, you know, uh, Congress. And I think, if I remember right, Paakin won i can't remember if that was a re-election if Palkin won that. I think he did. I think yeah, he won pa- that. Palkin won, uh, and that was part of people's—that was part of people's, you know, objection. Right? Was hey, you're already holding this office over
0: here, and anyway. And, so
2: it, it, it's a good question, but it depends on the individual, or yeah. The and
0: Rick, as you pointed out, Palkin won, and a lot of it was because the voters themselves thought that was a conflict of interest but not an illegal conflict yeah. of interest. The voters right. chose Pawkin over Joe Barton because they didn't think that it was right for him to hold a state office, which is an elected partisan office, at the same time he was a congressman, do one or the other. It's like you're trying to make a monopoly out of politics, let somebody else get involved. Right. And that was kind of the, exactly. the, the belief was, you know s- spread it around, let other people get involved. But that was the decision of the voters at the convention. And back in those days, yeah. I- I'm going to brag a little bit, Back in those days, Texas had the largest political convention in the world. We had 17,000 elected delegates at the state convention, counting delegates and alternates. So nobody in the world had 17,000 people participating, and we would get 11 or 12,000 showing up. We literally had the largest political convention anywhere in the world, and that was a state convention. And those people were active, they were involved and they cared about government and they're not dummies and they chose what they wanted. And they wanted Joe Barton to be congressman. They sent him back, but they also wanted somebody different for state chair and they elected Tom Palkin and, and he was elected then. So that's another way of handling it is let the people decide. And if they don't see it as a conflict of interest, you know you can't enforce by law what people don't don't themselves want to submit to and when it comes that's to right. if you think there's a conflict between holding a party office and a state office, well my goodness let the voters not elect one elect them to one or the other, but you don't have to have a law to regulate that, although some states do, and that's up to the states and yeah. that's that's the cool part of of having a federal constitution is it gives a lot of authority to the states to do what they want to do on that. The feds do have federal laws that won't allow you to hold two federal offices at once, and that's pretty much what states have to do as well.
2: Yeah, we call, we call it the boss hog uh, law. You can't be everybody in town on the Dukes of H- You can't have all the uh, power, uh, positions of power in the, on the Dukes of Hazzard. Uh, so you've got to spread it out, right? Spread that power out, in, in, uh, whether it's uh, the party office or, or political office. But, you know, our biggest problem is not people serving in too many offices. It's not enough people that think like us with a good biblical you know, foundation and a, and a biblical worldview, founding fathers' philosophy. Not enough people like us even serving in one office. <laughs> so I hope that today, actually, you, after you get more of these foundations, after you learn from these questions and we go back into history and we study these things, I hope that you'll be motivated to do more, that, that, that you won't just sit on the sidelines. That faith without works is dead. That, that you will take your faith. You'll live out your faith in every area of the culture, including how we treat our neighbors and what our society looks like. Get educated on these things. Get more information at wallboulders.com. Take our biblical citizenship class. Host that class. Become one of our constitution coaches and host those classes in your home or at your church. Just got back from a coaches conference, got to hear all these great testimonials of what's happening in communities where they're hosting these classes. It's absolutely phenomenal, and you can be the catalyst for a restoration of those biblical values and constitutional principles, you can be the one to lead the way in your community. Every single one of us can do something. Every single one of us has a voice that needs to be heard. Our values need to be counted. Step up and be a part of the solution, folks. Thanks so much for listening to Waffle.